The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Take a couple moments to adjust the body, stretch, whatever you need to, so you'll be comfortable for the talk. Nice to see that Shelley and Stacy are here, and so... Um, I think starting in January, I began sharing some reflections on the Buddhist teachings about the path. And uh, here we are some four months later, maybe a little bit more, four and a half months later, and we're wrapping it up. And I, I thought I'd share, it may seem a little dramatic, but I thought I'd share a sutta, the simile of the mountains, um, from the Samyutta Nikaya collection of discourses where the Buddha's talking to one of the well-known figures at the time of the Buddha, this king. And uh, the king showed up in the middle of the day and the Buddha asked, uh, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? And the king responded, just now, sir, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of head-anointed noble warrior kings intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensuality, who have attained stable control in the country, and who rule conquered, who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. <laughs> so at least he's honest about what it is to be, you know, at the top of the heap, as the king in this case. And the Buddha, you know, they had a friendship and this king had some real spiritual interest. And so the, the Buddha um, offered this simile. You know, what if one of your advisors showed up and said, hey, I was just to the east of the kingdom and I noticed that there were these very large range of mountains as high as the sky and strangely they were marching, you know, toward us, crushing everything in the way. And then another advisor, you see where this is going, from the West comes and says the same thing, except the mountains are marching toward the kingdom from the West. And then an advisor comes from the North, having just been to the North, same thing, huge mountain range marching toward the kingdom. And then finally someone from the South comes, reports the same thing. So the Buddha gives the king the simile, this example, and says, what would you do then? <laughs> And the king, having some practice, some reflection, said, what else could be done, what else should be done but practice? Wise conduct, skillful deeds, actions that plant wholesome seeds, that set good things in motion. Basically, what we should be doing anyway, even when we're not about to be crushed by mountain ranges, and he goes on, the king, you know, goes on to explain how all the power that he has with the armies and the wealth and the kind of wise advisors, diplomats who can make things happen the way the king wants them to happen, they're not going to help at all. And the Buddha, as he often does in these situations, then puts to verse like a easily remembered teaching summing up this conversation. Just as a mighty mountain range scraping the sky with rocky crags 
might advance from four directions, crushing everything before it, so also do old age and death roll over all living beings, nobles, brahmins, and working folks, peasants, outcasts, none of them can escape this end. Everybody surely gets crushed. Nothing on earth can defeat them, not elephants, chariots, or troops, not the use of a magic spell, nor can you buy safety with gold. So the person who's firm and wise, seeing what is best for themselves, will place their confidence in practice. Here they talk about it as Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, sort of in the early Buddhist tradition, or really most Buddhist traditions, it's code for our practice, being a refuge. Buddha represents this capacity to be awake, to be intimate. Dhamma represents the reality of our causes and conditions, the underlying nature of what's here. So we wake up with Buddha, Buddha's waking up to Dhamma, the conditions, the reality, right here, right now. And Sangha is the beautiful, enlightened way of showing up, responding, engaging, when I'm, when this heart, when this mind is intimate, connected, seeing clearly, coming out of this Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then the passage ends by the Buddha saying, one who practices the teaching with body, speech, and mind, right, this embodied, integrated uh, practice, that person is recognized and appreciated by wise people here and later, right? So we're taking care of ourselves now and whatever comes later by practicing in this way. And I, just, I thought it might be useful to start with that, even though it's a bit dramatic, because, you know, in little and big ways, that's of course different for all of us. Some of you are experiencing probably really difficult circumstances, maybe extremely difficult circumstances right now. Others of us maybe feel more privileged, more comfortable in our particular circumstance. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination and, and much listening and opening to realize how tenuous everything is, basically that things can happen anytime. And we don't even know what those things are. And certainly not all those things that can happen anytime or pleasant things or good things even, right? And there's enough evidence from the people we know and the people we hear about where really bad stuff happens. So this question the Buddha asks the king, well, what should we do? Well, we should have an answer to that question because this is the world we live in, this tenuous uncertain world where we move around with this sensitive, tender heart. What can be done? Well, we can practice. And that's what I've been talking about. We've been discussing these four months or so. And it's really about taking responsibility for how this heart is understanding, how this mind is relating to the moment, how this body is acting and engaging my circumstance, my world. 
these things matter. Right? That's what I've started the, this series of talks, this like really owning this insight that we all have to some degree that everything matters. It matters how right now I'm understanding the kind of view, fixed view or not, the kind of view that are operating, views that are operating in my mind and how I'm relating, like how I'm acting and showing up out of those views, the kind of attitudes, the kind of qualities in my mind, like being impatient versus being patient, being kind or having ill will, being impatient and averse or caught up in fear. But these sort of three ways, right, the view or understanding in my mind, taking responsibility for that, the more obvious qualities of the mind, the way I'm thinking and attitude, and then how that gets actually brought out into the world through my thoughts, my words, and my actions. So instead of um, feeling helpless, like we want to give up, things are out of our control, we really, as a spiritual practitioner, we put our emphasis in what we can do. Right? There's so much in terms of what's moving here and out there in our world that we don't have much control over. But the view and the way I'm relating and then out of that how I act, there is something that can be done there. But it requires this basic insight that it matters because that then triggers wise effort and this humility, like a willingness to be a student in my life, instead of thinking that I'm the master, you know, and then if things don't go well, it's not because I'm not masterful, it's because people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, or the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. But there's such a powerful shift when we realize I have to be a student. I don't know how to be skillful but I can learn. So I have to take this, um, I have to sort of own this humility. Yeah, that's trustworthy. And then from this place of humility, we're willing to, we realize the value of being able to be present without immediately reacting. Because I need to be able to observe from a relatively neutral place. A lot of people wonder, you know, in terms of the Buddhist teaching, why is there such an emphasis on calm and tranquility? Because it seems, given the nature of the world, that calm and tranquility would be somehow thinking, giving up on the world. Well, I'm just going to be calm and tranquil, and the world is a mess, and that's, I guess, how it is. But actually, the calm and tranquility is the place of being the student. So then, when I have this inner calm, then I can notice all the ways my heart and mind gets triggered by sense experience, all the liking and the disliking, all the ways I want to close down, all the ways I want to hit back. That tranquility provides this non-involved space so that we can observe the mind as a natural process. Not the mind theoretically, but my mind. This conditioned heart, this conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, 
I need to have that basic equanimity to be able to see that the conditioning of this mind, the habit energies of this mind are there. I need to take responsibility for them. And, and this is the important piece, it's not self, it's nature. It's not personal, the condition of this mind. I'm responsible, but it's not personal. So in terms of learning what's skillful and unskillful, we need to stabilize present moment awareness. It's really hard to understand, to learn how to be more skillful in terms of understanding, in terms of mental qualities, like our attitude, in terms of our actions in the world. It's really hard to know what's helpful and unhelpful when we're completely caught up with our fixed views and opinions and, you know, habits and identified with those habits and those views in a way that doesn't create any space for learning. We're just looking to have our fixed views confirmed as being true. We're not actually a student. So the calm and tranquility is the place of being a student because then the mind, for periods of time at least, can be receptive. And in that receptivity, the mind is still going to get triggered. The habits of the mind, the habits of our actions, the ways of relating how we take care of our body, how we relate to the body, we'll see it all. Like even in the course of a 30-minute silent sit where we're sitting relatively still. So even in that secluded space of our, our daily sit, we're going to see all kinds of habit energies getting triggered. We're just in that form of sitting still for 30 minutes, but it's not like nothing happens. I'm sure you've noticed. Everything happens in the space of our daily sitting practice. That's really the point. And then because we've taken up the form of not moving much during the 30-minute daily sit or 30 or 60 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever you can uh, arrange in your life, because we have that form, it just supports that balanced present moment awareness, seeing all that internal activity, all the triggering, all the doubt, all the dullness, all the agitation, all the wanting, all the hating, playing itself out. And little by little, the student, that receptive, open, non-judging awareness, becomes wiser. It's not even trying to become wise, it's just there in that receptive, humble place, and learning happens. Learning cannot not happen when the mind is in that open, clear, non-judging, receptive place. It's like a, a really pure way of collecting data. Now, we want to basically be doing the same thing all day long. It's just that the formal time we set aside for meditation practice, we, we just have more optimal conditions because we've made this resolve to sit in a relaxed and relatively still way. So it just makes it easier to notice the mind getting triggered because it helps to sustain that sense of tranquility and calm and non-judging, receptive, present moment awareness. And then what does that learning reveal? Might I mention this early on because it, it really goes hand in hand with that initial insight that it matters. The way the Buddha distilled from his own life 
and we just confirm it in our lives with our study of our heart and mind and body. These three, you could call them intentions, or these skillful intentions that come out of, that are distilled from collecting all that data. And the first one the Buddha names is stinginess, greediness is not the way. I've observed greed and stinginess, discontent, right? I've observed that habit energy of my heart being triggered so many times in my sits and in my daily lives. I see clearly now where that leads. I know that is not in the direction of freedom that I'm interested in. And I've also, less often, observed non-greed, generosity, contentment, renunciation. I've seen these qualities in the mind getting activated at times. I've seen where they lead. I've learned to really trust them, like, oh yeah, that feels good. Non-stinginess, generosity, contentment, the capacity to let go of, you know, when I don't get what I want, I could throw a fit, or could just, well, I guess that's not going to happen. It's raining today here in Minneapolis. Oh, we had sun, but today it's raining. If I had expectations for a nice spring day, I could get all worked up, or I could renounce the need for sunshine today. And that feels so good. It's like, oh, I don't have to be dependent on, sunsh on sunshine. So this valuing of renunciation and generosity and contentment just is a distillation of that data. We've been observing the mind where stinginess gets triggered and generosity gets triggered many, many times in many different contexts. And this intention, this sort of trusting of this heart intention to be generous, to be content with what we have right now, to be able to let go when things that we want don't come our way. We really, it becomes like a superpower, little by little, you know, gradually. So that's one of the distillations that comes from showing up and being aware. The next the Buddha names is kindness. Just like how many times have we noticed ourselves filled with fear or ill will or some flavor of aversion and see where that leads. Like, it makes me tight. It makes people around me tight. How could that be the way to more and more freedom? It's not the way. And hopefully, maybe not as often, we've noticed moments when we've been naturally kind and tender-hearted. And, uh, yeah, just uh, more of an embracing, accepting, inclusive quality of our heart. And how much better life works when the mind has that basic, operating from that place of basic goodness. Yes, this too, this moment, these conditions, this person, not necessarily what I would have chosen, but it's here and now, and having a kind relationship is better than having, using ill will, relating with ill will, wanting that person to be gone, or, you know, whatever the expression of the ill will might be. So this is not rocket science. Most of us understand the difference between stinginess and a more generous heart, between ill will and kindness. And the last is 
the um, tendencies towards real aggression and causing harm and justifying, feeling like, yeah, there's, you know, it just comes with life. I'm going to be harming, so I'm just going to cause harm when I, when I need to in order to get what I need to get. And so we see that a lot. Like this spider, excuse me, this spider is bothering me, so I'm going to cause this spider harm or maybe even kill it, and then I'll feel better. And so what the collecting of data, living a life that is from this place of being a student, this humility, I don't know what's good. I don't know what leads in the direction of more, a deeper sense of well-being, a deeper sense of freedom. So I'll notice, like when I do cause harm, in, in terms of how I live my life, in terms of what I eat, in terms of how I relate to other human beings, when I notice that I'm causing harm, I notice what that leads to, what that sets in motion right here. Does it lead toward well-being? And when I really value non-harming, when I'm willing to use some of my psychic energy to be aware of whether I'm harming, to be curious about whether I'm participating in the world in ways that cause others harm, when I get curious about that and really invest in non-harming, does it make me tight or does it leave me feeling better, more well-being? Uh, in Buddhism, sometimes we call that deep valuing of non-harming, this sort of uh, kind of bliss of harmlessness or the bliss of blamelessness. As because I've brought a lot of sensitivity to ways that I might be involved in harming, then I feel good about being sensitive in that way and taking responsibility in that way. So I sleep better. I move through the world better because I value non-harming. Now this is, it can't be like taken from another person. We actually have to check it out. When you catch yourself not valuing non-harming, justifying causing others harm, how does that sit in your heart? What kind of heart does that set in motion? When you find yourself really valuing non-harming, willing to expend some energy to learn how I might be part of causing harm. Wynn and I, um, my partner Wynn Fricke, also the co-founder of Common Ground, and I watched a movie about the environment um, that someone sent us the link for, The Planet of the Humans, I think it's called. And uh, it was quite moving, and I understand it's quite controversial too. Um, but anyway, just it, it really, for me, like a lot of these movies about the climate crisis, and I mentioned last week, you know, the, the videotape of the person in Georgia being killed, maybe murdered, it certainly looks that way from the evidence at hand, um, jogging through a neighborhood, and uh, a black man. Um, when we hear about these things, the sort of racial injustice and the environmental crisis or any number of other kinds of injustices that we might be exposed to, little or big, close at hand or far away, you know, it's the question is, what does that, how do we show up to those experiences? And how can they be the ground for cultivating these 
three wholesome intentions of letting go, renunciation, generosity, kindness, and a deepening commitment, like a resolve, like a pouring of our heart towards non-harming. And realizing we don't necessarily know how we're part of harming. So it really begs this, it sort of supports more of this humility, a, a greater willingness to be a student in my life, to be willing to listen with humility, with non-judgment. And we, we value this sensitive heart. It's really, this is what we mean by wise, mindful awareness, right? Like This is what we trust. This is the Buddha knowing Dhamma. We can't directly do the Sangha, the sort of enlightened activity, the skillful activity in the world. But what we can do is value this place of being an open student, a humble student of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And I, and I wanted to end, and I'll, I'll pick it up a little bit next week when I talk a little bit more about action in the world. But I wanted to end then with how these three intentions of renunciation or generosity, kindness and compassion, really because they lead to our well-being. It's not like later they lead to well-being. We start to feel better immediately when we're engaging the world with generosity, kindness and this deep commitment to non-harming our life just starts to feel and work better, not later, like the Buddha says. It's good in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. And that really is a kind of stabilizing of our life. So this allows for a deepening insight, which I want to go through and I'll come back to next week. And the way the Buddha talks about this often is this insight into the underlying nature. Right? So the mind is stable and uh, fearless, receptive, and we see the underlying, line, underlying nature that things are changing. So I was just mentioning this, uh, you know, in later Buddhist traditions, it's quite elaborate the, how insight, how understanding deepens. But at the time of the Buddha, it was very simple how he talked about it. It was basically because of these three wholesome intentions of renunciation or generosity, kindness and compassion, this commitment to non-harming, our heart, mind, we feel better in life, even with difficult circumstances. So regardless of where we are located in the world, in culture, if we cultivate through being a good student these three wholesome intentions, our life stabilizes. When our life stabilizes, we see the underlying nature, that things are changing. And that insight, that intimacy with the flow, life as a movement of sensation, of thought, of emotion, it really allows for dispassion to grow. Dispassion is this natural, unavoidable result. Like, if we ask the question, what happens if I have a more honest, an intimate connection with the way it is. Well, the, the answer the Buddha and other practitioners, I can speak to this myself, the answer is the heart becomes more dispassionate. It 
it changes how my heart, my mind relates to sense experience. Because I'm seeing the underlying nature of change, just to make it simple, I'm less and less over time neurotically dependent on sense experience. I still like what I like, I still dislike what I don't like, but I'm not imagining the next sense experience is going to be the end all. And that creates a lot more space, that growing dispassion. When Fricky, um, she was subbing for Shelley Graff last Wednesday and gave a talk on serene disenchantment. You can check the um, YouTube archive, the Common Ground YouTube channel, and uh, listen to that talk if you want on serene disenchantment. And that's really something we want to learn how to live with because it can be initially confusing. Like a lot of students might ask people, you know, a teacher, you know, I'm feeling like uh, I don't want the things I used to want. You know, is that a problem? <laughs> Am I depressed? Or So part of what we're doing in practice is we're learning to taste and feel dispassion as an enlivening and liberating quality. Because it stabilizes the mind and heart even more, right? Because the more I understand I'm not dependent on knee pain or not having knee pain or calmness or not having calmness, that the, the whole system settles down more easily. Not because I'm trying to make it settle down, but because I'm not so attached to how it is, things naturally settle down. And when things settle down, it's easier to see even more clearly. So it supports deeper insight. And the next level of insight here in the tradition is called cessation. And cessation just means seeing clearly that things cease that experience come and then goes, ends, passes away. Even grasping, even attachment, even the unwholesome qualities of mind are arising and ceasing. And it really, this insight, seeing this insight in little and big ways, over here, over there, different places in our life, seeing the insight of cessation, experiencing that, then it really changes how we see ourselves as a practitioner. So instead of, I have to practice in order to make things go away, it's much more, I'm practicing to remember that things go away, that things come and go. So it's more about, practice becomes more about trusting the underlying nature, that when I'm acting out, out in the world or even just within my own heart and mind, you know, I'm fuming about something, upset about something. With this wisdom of cessation, then, as I practice with it, I know it isn't as permanent as it appears. I know it's not referring to a me in the way that it, it appears that I'm angry, I'm acting out, I'm being inappropriate. But with that insight of cessation, then wisdom looks at that mind that's angry and it understands that that anger is something that comes and goes. That's all it is. It's something that comes and goes. It doesn't refer back. It isn't permanently located somewhere. It's also a changing process. 
And so the understanding, the insight, is the intervention, not some practitioner who's got to get themselves from being angry back to being kind, which is how we normally will approach when I'm, you know, got a bad attitude. I think I'm over here with a bad attitude and I got to get myself back to this place of having a good attitude. And that's a lot of work because when I'm this guy with this bad attitude, it's like really seems like it's me. And like, how am I going to become that person that's really kind? But with a lot of stable wisdom, awareness, right, then we see, we're still seeing the same thing. There is anger. There is this whatever unwholesome quality of mind. But there's also this understanding of what that is. It's something that comes and goes. So all self-centered, all neurotic patterns then there's less fear, there's less neurotic fear about being neurotic and angry and greedy and lustful and hopeless and despairing. Because wisdom awareness sees that for what it actually is, a mental pattern that comes and goes, that flows, that has causes and conditions behind it, but doesn't refer back. So this deepening, the more and more of that insight of cessation, that things come and go, that they're always changing, they're never referring back in a permanent way to a someone, then that leads to the sort of fruition of letting go, of realizing the mind that has let go of selfing, that has temporarily, right, in moments, ceased selfing, ceased constructing a somebody that's living, that's having this life, that owns this life, that's either good or bad. And that's the maturing of insight, right? Stabilizing, like this capacity to be an open, humble student of the dance of life, of the movement of body, movement of sensation, movement of thought and emotion, Seeing that stabilizing allows us to feel, wisdom awareness feels and sees the underlying nature of impermanence, of change, of ephemeral nature, the truth of uncertainty. That naturally, unavoidably, without anybody having to do anything, grows dispassion. And that matures into a serene disenchantment. I don't need to be, there is nobody who needs to be dependent on conditions. So I have a much more spacious relationship with what's coming and going in my experience. That stabilizes the awareness, wisdom awareness even more. And so it can start to notice actually, absolutely, things arise and then they cease. And that really transforms the nature of being the practitioner from somebody who's got to become wise, become skillful, to somebody who is remembering the way it is, keeping wisdom in mind, keeping understanding in mind, really not forgetting the way it is, trusting the way that it is. That's sort of the deeper role, you, you could say, of the practitioner as insight deepens, is keeping this insight in mind as I'm living, whether I'm in a sit or engage with my partner or doing the work of my life, keeping that 
deeper understanding in mind. Oh, as Ajahn Sumedho, one of our teachers in this early Buddhist lineage says, everything comes and goes and it's not self. So what I'd like to do next week is use this article that um, I asked Gabe Keller Flores to put in the uh, weekly email so you can get it there. It's from Joanna Macy, a really wonderful teacher. And what I find so remarkable is they wrote this article in 1993, so almost 30 years ago. And it's really exactly what we need to hear today. So I don't know if that's depressing or optimistic, but here it is. And uh, Joanna, is, besides being a Buddhist teacher, is a long-time activist, especially an environmental activist, um, for many, many decades. And starts the article just talking about how it might appear hopeless, and then she talks about how she takes refuge. And the reason I want to start sharing it and then come back to it next week is she's really talking about how that deepening of insight that I just described doesn't leave someone disconnected. It's actually what helps someone to be connected and to respond from that place. And that's the Sangha piece of the refuge. Buddha is intimate with Dhamma, the way it is, and that allows for wise, fearless, compassionate action in the world. So here's uh, a paragraph. I'd also like to reflect on some things that have helped me act for earth. What do we have going for us? I've come to realize that we have a lot going for us. First, it helps to remember your true nature. Action is not something you do, it's something you are. In other words, you are not a noun, you're a verb. That is our true nature. In the old paradigm, the substantialist view of the world, rocks, atoms, molecules, trees, people, nation-states were seen as separate entities. And what happens between them in terms of interchanges, communications, messages, relationships, was considered less real because you can't see it or weigh it or touch it. And then a little later writes, <clears throat> Now, in the view that has emerged in our time, natural scientists see reality as flows, interconnecting currents of matter, energy, and information. So that's why sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll say the whole practice is about relating, how the heart is relating, how the heart is showing up. Not so much about who I am or who you are, but how we're relating right now. And see, it's always new because there's always the next moment to be relating to. And uh, Joanna continues writing, this reversal of perspective is happening now and we can live it in our lives. System thinker Norbert Wiener said, we are not stuff that abides, we are patterns in a river of ever flowing water. Or to use another image, we are flames that keep our shape by burning, by the act of combustion, matter in, matter out.
and a little more I want to read. So action isn't a burden to be hoisted up and lugged around in our, on our shoulders. It's something we are. The work we have to do can be seen as a kind of coming alive. More than some moral imperative, it's an awakening to our true nature, a releasing of our gifts. This flow through of energy and ideas is at every moment directed by our choice. And those are those three wholesome intentions, or we fall back into the habit of the three unwholesome attachments. Non-greed, which is renunciation, generosity, contentment, or we fall into the old habit of stinginess, or kindness, or we fall into the old habits of aversion and fear and ill will. Non-harming, compassion, or we fall into the old habits of justifying, causing harm, because it's too hard to pay attention, or we do, those people don't count, or those creatures don't count. That's our role in it. We're like a lens that can focus, or a gate that can direct this flow through by schooling our intention. In each moment, we can give it direction. And that choice between the wholesome and the unwholesome that isn't so much a you doing it as much as a willingness learning how to be that student, that wide open, embodied, sensitive, humble student that feels the difference. So when we are acting out our greed, our hate, our disconnection and delusion, that wise, humble student feels, oh yeah, this is not the way. That's what changes. It's that sensitivity. And it opens it up to another possibility. What would renunciation, kindness, compassion look like in this moment? What would it look like in this moment? So I invite you to reflect on this this coming week and join in next uh, Sunday and get a hold of the article. I, I find it really powerful, so you might enjoy reading it. Um, it's from Tricycle. Those of you who have a, a subscription, it's Tricycle, Winter of 1993, Schooling Our Intention by Joanna Macy. And Gabe will have that in the weekly email. And you can sign up to get the weekly email on our homepage. And even if you don't want to get the weekly email, we always link the weekly email on the homepage so you can just read the one that was sent out the previous week there. And of course, there's many other programs coming up, so check the online calendar. All the Zoom links and the live stream links are there. Um, Patrice Kausch started a course. People are welcome to join in Wednesday at 6. Um, you're welcome to join in for the introduction class that I'm leading on Tuesday evenings at 7.30. Shelley Graff and the teacher training folks from the current IMS teacher training are having a program every Tuesday evening that people can join in. Shelley is now back and will be leading the Wednesday night practice group um, at 7.30 and many other programs coming up. So, so great to be with everyone this morning. Wishing you safety and really beautiful deepening of your practice. Take care. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.